Hey, we're going to look at a number of different things as we begin this morning. If you would, go to Jeremiah 6 first, and we're, we're going to take a, uh, if you saw on the Facebook page yesterday, we're going to take a one-week uh, break from First uh, Peter. We'll get back into First Peter 3 next week. But I want to I want to share some things that kind of been on my heart for a bit, and uh, I think you'll you'll find that God has a word for us today. Jeremiah chapter six will be there in just a moment. I want to talk today about a life filled with either the unnecessary things or a life filled with what is absolutely critical and necessary for us. I was thinking this week, and now that we've been back, kind of getting back into the swing of things after being gone for twelve days. About nine and a half years ago, we began this journey of something called LifePoint. And while some of you were already uh, meeting together, my family and I joined you guys at that time and kind of got into the mix of things. And as I became the lead pastor and the elder of the church, um, we began to walk in things that are deep within my heart in regard to uh, philosophy. And as it is with the life of anything, whether church or just a person's life, there have been great highs in the midst of this journey. There have been a few lows along the way, but one thing has remained above everything that has been our sole priority no matter what. And I'm grateful after all of these years that we have never swayed from the ultimate priority that we have embraced what God's heart is for the local church. And from the very beginning, one main thing we have embraced, we have grown in, from that first Sunday until this Sunday right now and what we are doing now. And we have valued God's word above everything. It has been the thing that has marked us. It's been the thing that has driven us. And while we were in Asia, a deep reminder and confirmation of why we do what we do here at LifePoint um, resonated in my heart one morning. Um, I, I love our church property here, but um, I just, a couple of weeks ago, every morning we just sat on a mountain terrace and looked out in the valley and had our quiet time there. It was just an amazing thing. And I looked at all of us just sitting out there from our team, reading God's Word and spending time in God's Word and, and looking at the building that we had raised money to build, that people are coming to faith in there now. And God's Word is being preached in a village where it had not really for thousands of years been preached. It's being preached. It was preached yesterday. They meet on Saturdays and it was preached yesterday. Five Saturdays in a row or six Saturdays in a row. It has been being preached on a consistent basis as people um, have gathered there. I was also reminded of this great priority as I watched Mike and David and, and Mark and, and John and Mark. Both Marks got two Marks. Mark, Mark 1 and Mark 2, they were called. This is Mark 2 down here. That's Mark 1. We're not for sure why that's the case. But anyway, they named them Mark 1 and Mark 2. And I just was reminded listening as, as they challenged this group of uh, Nepali believers of why God's Word is so important and why it is so critical for us in our lives. And so in Jeremiah chapter 6, <clears throat> Jeremiah has been communicating, listen, God's judgment is coming because we have rejected what God has said. And there's a choice, Jeremiah is telling the people, and the choice is this, is we're going to find rest walking in God's ways in His Word, or we're going to say, I don't find his word necessary for us. So look with me in Jeremiah 6, just 16 and 17. We must embrace these words. They are ancient, but they are relevant. 
Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah writes, God's saying this, Stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And if you will do that, God says, you'll find rest for your souls. But here's what the nation said. We will not walk in it, God. We're not going to go that way. And so God says, listen, I sent people to you. I set watchmen over you saying to you, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet, the sounding of God's truth. But the nation said, we will not pay attention. So let's just stop there. Here's the reality before us this morning I want to remind us of this morning. And I realize in this room, I'm probably preaching to the choir. But if I'm not, I pray this morning that we would be reminded or we would be awakened again to the great reality. You and I are not going to find rest for our souls if we leave God's Word out of our lives. It will not happen We will not find it, even though there's a walk, even though there's a a journey, even though there's trials along the way in the journey. If we're going to say we will not embrace your written word as it is written, then we will never find rest for our souls. Over the last several months, I have become more aware of just in my reading and being aware one of the roles that God has upon my life as a calling is to be aware of what is being communicated in the Western world in regard to church? What is being preached? And at times, um, I have made those things necessary. And I'm going to do something this morning. In the nine and a half years I've been here, I've never done this before. Um, but I'm going to just pause down this morning. And I want to I make you aware of some things that are being communicated. Because um, if you are a listener of radio, if you listen to sermons, these things are going to drift and they be, you're going to probably hear about them. And I want to address them today. And then we're going to look at why God's Word and, and the bowing and the yielding to God's Word is such a great priority. I have heard in recent days and some things have just been resonating in my heart and in my time and in Nepal of just becoming increasingly aware of things that are being taught out in the American culture. Prominent speakers, pastors, conferences, authors, and all of these things. And I, again, as I said, I stay aware of these things because I think they're really important. I want you to go to Acts chapter 20 for a moment because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of couch all this stuff in looking at Scripture because you don't need to hear Doke's words this morning. We need to hear God's words this morning and allow the text to drive us. Acts chapter 20. I feel for you and I feel for me. I feel for us as a church as Paul did with the Ephesian elders. Paul has landed... Um, from a ship, he's landed on the, the land. They sent word to the Ephesian elders to meet him where he is, and he's going to give them some last instructions. Acts 20, verse 26. And these are the last words that Paul is sharing with this group of people. Follow along in verse 26 of Acts 20. So Paul says, Therefore I testify to you on this day that I, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Look up here just for a moment. This, this must drive us as a church to not just pick and choose things, but we've, we've got to teach the whole counsel. This is what God says in every kind of way. And the, I think the only way to do that is to do what we do here is you walk verse by verse through Scripture. Because if you don't do that, you'll skip and miss things. And I love what we do here because next Sunday, even though we're kind of taking a pause now, Walking through books of the Bible, I never have to go on a Monday, okay, what am I going to preach on next week? 
God has already spoken. I am not to come up with something new. I am to proclaim what he has already said. And what he has said is relevant today as if he is saying it for the first time now. So Paul tells them, listen, I, I'm innocent because I declared to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't hide anything from you. And then he says there's a danger that's going to come. Look at 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, here's what's going to happen. Fierce wolves are going to come in from the outside and they're going to come in among you and their aim is to not spare the flock. They're going to destroy the flock, hurt the flock, scatter the flock. And not only from the outside, verse 30 says, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Their aim is much the same, to draw away the disciples after them, not to point them to Christ. Look at 31. So he says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Look what he says. I commend you to who God is, the eternal God, and to the word of his grace, the scripture, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. For several weeks now, I've had this thing stirring in my heart, and I just couldn't let it go on Monday. And I realized I just needed to communicate it this morning um, to us. And we're going to eventually get to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at what it looks like to have a heart that has one thing that drives it, and that is to sit at the feet of Jesus and to have his words fall upon us. And because of the counsel of Scripture is so clear, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to make any big declarations this morning to say the end is here. It's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen two weeks from now. Scripture counsel says don't do that. But I will say this this morning, that Paul wrote some scripture that said in the last days, he says, this is what things are going to look like. And I'm not making a prediction today, but what I'm saying to you is Jesus, it may be 500 years before he comes back, but we have characteristics in our culture today in regard to what those days are going to look like. And the counsel from Scripture for us is, let's be aware of what is going on. So I want you to now go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Go to your right, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I want us to read a, a text there and see what Paul communicates. 2 Timothy 4, and I want to read 1 through 5 for a moment, and then we're going to go to 2 Timothy 4. Before we get to Luke, uh, a couple other texts this morning. All right, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to the deceitful spirits. This is 1 Timothy 4, 1. And the teaching of demons. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. I want you to go to 2 Timothy now. If you're at 1 Timothy, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4. 
So Paul writes the second letter to this young pastor, Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, here's what you do. Preach the word. You be ready in season and out of season. You reprove, you rebuke, you exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But they will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And they will wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded. You will have to endure suffering. And I want you to do the work of an evangelist to fulfill your ministry. And I want to just stop for a moment. I want to address a couple of things this morning before uh, that I just want to remind you of and I want to make you aware of some things. So Paul here in 2 Timothy 4 reminds Timothy, listen, you have a responsibility to God. You live in the presence of God and Christ who is the judge of the living and the dead. And with that, you have been given this great task. And the great task is proclaim the truth of God's word, walk in the truth of God's word when it's popular, in season, and when it's out of season, when it's not popular and people are turning away and they're doing their own thing and they're accumulating teachers to just remind us that there's no judgment, there's no anything like that. And so he tells them, you have this great task, Timothy, to proclaim the truth of God's word. And then he says this, listen, there's coming a day when there's going to be a rejection of sound teaching. And so Paul makes this clear. And so instead, people are going to have an itch on their ear, this listening thing that they can't scratch and, and satisfy with the truth. They've got to drift away to lies and made up stories and myths, and that satisfies the scratching but, or the itch that's there. But it, it's, it's a hopeless road. It's a road that's not grounded in truth. It's a road that is leading away from truth and in that and in that pursuit they will turn away from the eternal truth and they will wander onto the path of made up stories about God and then he reminds them in verse 5 Timothy you've got to fulfill your ministry and you've got to be sober about it you can't be influenced by the intoxicating sounds and the cuteness of things that are taught you must be committed to the truth of God's word Just in the last several weeks, there are a number of things that have been communicated um, in American church culture. The Episcopal Church just this week has made a decision. The Episcopal Church for a long time has been drifting away from the the Scripture. And I sent this to the elders. And Tim responded back to our group um, this week of, you know, little compromises all along eventually lead to really, really big compromises in the end. So the Episcopal Church this week has sent out kind of an edict to all the churches here and also in the churches in England to say this, that if people in their wedding ceremonies anymore don't want to use the word husband and wife, the encouragement is remove the words husband and wife. And you can say wife and wife, you can say husband and husband, you can do that, and all the aim is to accommodate um, the homosexuals and, and the, those who are wrestling with the sexual, out, uh, sexual issues um, in their lives. And so that just has come out this week um, that the priests are to do that. There's been some pushback to it. On Easter Sunday morning, there is a church in Grapevine where the pastor stood up. Um, it's not the big one 
that has the big sign on it. If you fly over, it's not that one. It's another one. And they have, this church has satellites all over. And the pastor, the, the satellites, 39,000 people were part of this church on Easter Sunday morning stood up and said some things that the church never has taught before, ever, and declared some things to 39,000, probably more people because it was Easter Sunday morning. There's a popular pastor in North Point Community Church in Atlanta who just a few weeks ago stood up before his people and literally said these words. Listen to this. I listened to the sermon. I didn't read this in internet land and and just kind of take some quotes. I listened to it. This is what he said. First century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview value system of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well, that pastor said. He went on to say this, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own to nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. He went on to say, The Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created and launched Christianity. And then he said, your whole house of Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. As if that was not enough, then he said this, Christianity did not begin with the teachings of Jesus, but with an event, the resurrection. And then he literally said this as well, this may shock you, He said, I would put this up on the screen, but somebody would take a screenshot of it and would get me in a lot of trouble. But here's what I will say. Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. This man has lots of influence in the world. He's he's a dynamic communicator, and I do believe he loves the Lord Jesus. But I just want to call out things that are not true. Now, I absolutely agree with this, Pastor that we should not follow the ceremonial laws, we don't have to do that, but the moral law of the Old Testament, we follow. The Old Testament is inspired, pointing to Jesus. And you can't, we're not going to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament that's about Jesus as well. Yes, it was about shadows and the fulfillment came in the life of Jesus, but our heart is God's Word is the truth. Y'all remember the day of the resurrection? Jesus walked with two guys to Emmaus. What did he spend that whole time with them doing? Explaining who he was from what? From the New Testament scriptures? No, they hadn't even been written yet. From the Old Testament scriptures, he explained to them the night of the day of the resurrection, he meets the apostles in the upper room, and what does he do with them? Anybody remember? He teaches them who he is from the Old Testament scriptures. And so there is a, we don't have to go through as Gentiles, go through Judaism to come to Jesus. We just come to Jesus. And so I agree with that. But there's this language that was put forth that just said this, literally, um, let's just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And I want to remind you and I today that in American church culture, I believe we are living in a time where these kind of things, you're going to hear them more and more because they're cute to say, they're interesting to say, but they are not biblical. And what you and I have got to do is we have got to embrace what God's Word says and embrace all of it and walk in the reality 
of it. Listen to this also. This is 1 Timothy 4, 6. You can follow. He says, listen, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. And he says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For our bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For to this we toil and strive because our hope is set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And he says in verse 11, command and teach these things. Don't let anybody despise you because you're young. But set the believers an example in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And don't neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by the prophecy of the council of elders, laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Look what he says in 16. Keep a close watch on yourself. And on the what? What does it say? The teaching. Keep a close watch on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Long introduction. Now we're going to start the sermon. But I wanted to point this out to you today. You need to check what I say on Sunday morning. Do you agree? What I say right here must line up with this it has to if i start making up stuff then you need to deal with me now i I agree that there's aspects of 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 faith sometimes where there's some different perspectives on things but but not a lot of them okay and it's critical for us that our life is grounded and set deeply in what the Scripture has to say. Now I want you to go to Psalm chapter 138 for a moment. We've shared this before. I think, I think Andrew, do we have that on the screen, 138 too? Psalm 138 too? Yeah, I guess we don't have it. This is, I want to talk about the priority of God and I want to show you something in Psalm 138 too. This has become one of those kind of rallying cries in my own heart in regard to faith. Psalm 138, verse 2. Here's what it says. Yeah, if you don't have a Bible, it's here up on the screen. But here's what it says. I bow down toward your holy temple, and I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And look, what, look what it says here. For you, God, this is about God, for you have exalted above all things two things. God has exalted his name above all things. And then it also says he's exalted his word above all things. And, and watch this. If in the value system of God, that there are two primary things that, that drives him, that, that he has elevated, that he has said, this is what I value. This is who I am. This is what you, as my children, I want you to value because I value this. I have, I have done this. I have exalted my name to be the name above all names. It's the highest name. And so you watch what you say about my name. You watch what you hear about my name. You, I exalt my name. You exalt my name. And I have done this. I have also exalted my word. So you exalt my word. And you make these two things the driving reality of how you live your life. 
The only way we know the glory and the majesty and the perfection of His name is in His Word that gives us these great stories, these great truths about who He is. And that's not the only place. We want Psalm 138 too, that talks about this. Psalm 19, 1-11 speaks about the heavens declare the glory of God. And then he gets in verse 6 and he talks about the perfection of God's Word. Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. <clears throat> Moses and Elijah show up. Peter, James, and John are there. The father speaks and says this, This is my son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. Listen when he speaks because what he says has such value. Isaiah 42, 21 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify the law, to magnify the word, and to make it glorious. I want you to go now to Psalm 27, just to the left for there for a moment. Psalm 27, we're going to get to Luke 10, I promise. We're almost there. The sermon's almost going to begin, Linda. Are you ready, Linda? Linda's ready. Linda says, you just keep on. So that's the priority of God, His name and His word. So it must become our priority. Secondly, I want to talk about this, just the simplistic priority of the Christian life and for the church. And I want to share three passages with you. Psalm 27, 4. Here's what David says. One thing, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, listen, I've looked at my life and I've simplified this faith life I have in God to one thing. If there's one thing I've got to do, and it's this, one thing I've asked of God, this one thing I'm going to seek after above everything else, I'm going to seek God, I'm going to worship God, I'm going to gaze at his beauty, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. So that's what David says, he defines, this is the one thing. Now go to New Testament, Philippians chapter 3, and let's hear what Paul has to say about this one thing. What is the, what is the one thing? Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> And here's what he says in verse 13 and 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain toward what lies ahead. Now he's going to define for this one thing. What is he doing? Why is he forgetting the past? He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wants to know God. He wants to know Jesus. Now go to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to camp down there. Luke 10. Now let's read the last verse of Luke 10, and then we're going to look at 38 through 42. Luke 10, 42. But one thing is necessary. This is from the mouth of Jesus. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. All right, now look up here. 
David in the Old Testament says, listen, I've reduced this relationship down to, if I could, if I could understand what's the most important thing, and it's this, one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to be a seeker of God, and I'm going to, I want to seek to know Him, I want to know Him. The way that I do that is I gaze and I behold the beauty of who He is. I want to seek Him there, and as I seek Him in His temple, He's going to speak because He's a speaking God. Paul says this, one thing I do is I'm, I'm not worried about my past because my past has got some things connected with it. One thing I'm going to do, I'm pressing on because I want to I know Him. I want to know Jesus. How do I know Jesus? I know Jesus through the Word. Jesus comes into Bethany in Luke 10, and He's there. There's these two sisters. We'll look at them here in a moment. And one's bothered by a bunch of stuff, but one's chosen something, and Jesus says to everybody in the room that day, he says, listen, one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing, if you're going to reduce everything down to one thing, one thing is this, it's sitting at my feet and allowing my eternal words to fall upon your ears. That is the one thing that must drive your life. So the simplistic priority of our lives is this, is that we would be the kind of people who pursue God through His Word. And, we, and that becomes the essence of why we do everything that we do. It's the fuel for serving. If you're not in God's Word, you're going to be a frustrated servant. You are. And you're going to get upset with people because they're not doing what you want them to do. And we'll see that here in just a moment. So let's look now at this text and let's walk through this. And I want to talk about, we're going to skip point three, Andrea. We're going to go straight on to point four. Point three is so secretive. If you'll come later, I'll share with you. It's so awesome. But anyway, just a lot of scriptures about Jesus speaking. I want to talk about a life filled with what is unnecessary, and I want to talk about the life that's filled with what is necessary. So we've been walking that before this year through Luke. It's almost over, and we're going to start the book of Acts. And Luke's gospel from Luke ten thirty nine all the way to chapter 19, verse 28 is the most extensive part of Luke's gospel about Jesus' teaching. Very few miracles take place in there. This is likely the last six to eight months of Jesus' life, and he crisscrosses all through Israel, and everywhere he goes, he's teaching. He gets into a street. He gets into a home. He just is proclaiming, and at the very beginning of this long, extensive writing of Luke about the teaching of Jesus, he gives us a picture of what responding to God's word and the posture to God's word looks like with these two sisters. So let's read the text, all of it. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, this is this new journey and all, it's going to be all kinds of teaching. Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you're troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I want to talk first of all this morning about what's necessary in our lives, but I want to talk for a moment about the word proximity to Jesus. And I want to pose a question to us this morning based on verse 38. 
Now as it went on the way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And I want to pose this question. Is proximity to Jesus enough or is there something more that must drive us in our lives? So all of a sudden, Jesus enters Bethany. He arrives at this home of Martha and her name means mistress. It means she's the She's the owner of the home. She's the leader of the home. Likely she's a widow, uh, but this is her home. And Jesus, the apostles, extended people. She's got a lot of people who've shown up at the house. Is that stress? That's stress. If they just shown up all of a sudden and you may not know. We don't know how Jesus came to know this family. We know that he was very intimate with his family. We don't know in Luke 10... If, if he's intimate with them yet, if there's close friends. Because at the beginning of Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72, and he tells them, when you enter a town, I want you to find people who open their home to you, and they're a person of peace. So it's possible when he sent out the 72, they may have met Martha and Mary. And so as they're traveling, they may, they, now, they, now they may have been friends for a while, but it, this may be the first really unique big encounter that Jesus has with this family. We don't know when the relationship started, but here they are. They've come, and Martha opens her home, and I think she opens her heart to Jesus and everybody who is there that day. How many people get that opportunity that she has in that day? Jesus in a body is in your house. He's drinking from your cup. He's sitting in your chair. You're preparing. You can hear him laughing and talking in there. What an unbelievable opportunity. And it says here in the Greek, this word is hupodekomai. It means this, not just to greet, but to greet someone in such a way that you want to entertain them and you want to, to, to meet their needs as a guest in your home. And so she takes Jesus in. She takes everybody else in that day. And she is extremely hospitable. But with Martha, Jesus is just, she's just in proximity of him. She's not sitting at his feet. I believe proximity is great. But proximity is not the same as intimacy. Martha, Mary has intimacy because she sits at the feet of Jesus. Martha has proximity. And in regard to faith, I believe there is a huge section of Christ's followers who have gone to church their whole lives. And they've sat in rooms like this, they've sang songs, and they're believers who have become tent, content just to be Christians of proximity and not intimacy. And for these people, for the most part, they experience good things. They may serve, but they've never chosen the better portion and the best portion by sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's like the prodigal son. Remember when he came to his senses, he said, man, the servants at my father's house, they've got it better than I've got it here in this distant country. I'm going to go home, but because I've wrecked my father's name and I've wrecked his riches, I'm going to go back and I'm no longer worthy to be a son, even though I am a son. My DNA is a son. I'm going to go back and be a servant. And at least living there in proximity of the Father, I'll get to eat like the servants get to eat. I'll get to live in the servants' quarters. And so he has this mindset, I'll go back and I'll live in proximity. He has convinced himself intimacy is gone. I am never going to experience it again. And yet when he comes back, he's got his speech memorized. And the Father just shatters with his running down the road and 
wrapping his arms around him and kissing him and putting shoes on his feet and killing the fatted calf and having a party, he shatters this idea that proximity is enough. He says, no, it's intimacy. It's in the hug. It's in the embrace. That's where you're going to find life. And so Martha is possibly exercising a gift, hospitality, but it caused her to miss out on the most important thing. You see, the priority of sitting at the feet of Jesus, Jesus, listen to me, takes precedent over everything. It takes precedent over everything. Everything flows out of that. Missions, sharing, spiritual gifts, preaching, singing, worship, leading a family, whatever the case may be, it all flows out of sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so how is this for you and I? Have you and I chosen proximity or have you and I chosen intimacy? And if you've chosen proximity, I just kind of want to be here and I'm not really going to ever really engage my heart. I want to say to you today, let that go. Choose intimacy. There's one necessary choice. And let me give you some principles. Here's what Mary shows us about what's necessary, that the posture that you and I choose to have in regard to God's Word, to teaching, it absolutely matters. Every time Jesus showed up in the Scripture in the New Testament, He showed up and He proclaimed. Even as He healed, He proclaimed. He, he talked, and here He is in Bethany. He's at this home, and He's pouring out truth, and Mary settles into a special place at His feet in the room, and it's an incredible moment. Listen to me. Watch this. We have complicated our faith and we've complicated church life. Jesus did not travel all over Israel having conferences. He didn't have a band that he carried with him. They didn't go ahead and set up cool candles. They didn't have electricity back then, so they had cool lighting. Everywhere he went, what did he do? He taught. From his mouth in cities where on lakes, shores, in boats he taught the word and he arrives on this day and he's doing what he always does and it says this about mary she was sitting at his feet it means this this word in the greek means para means alongside kethazomai means to seat oneself jesus comes in and he sits down and he starts teaching and she looks in the room she's like okay i know i'm a woman and in the synagogue, I have to sit in the women's section. And I can never sit at or A rabbi would never allow a woman to sit at his feet. And she just gets right down there and she's sitting at his feet. I mean, just touching his feet probably, just close. And Jesus just starts pouring forth truth. And she's sitting right there at his feet. And she chose to do that. And incidentally, he welcomed it. Totally against cultural norms. A rabbi would never allow a woman to sit at his feet. And he's just totally great with it. Listen, we must sit with Jesus more than anyone else, beholding and hearing his word. Several years ago, they did an exit interview of Christians as they left Christian bookstores. And they asked them, why did you come today? Well, I came to buy a Bible today. Well, what did you buy? You know what they found? I believe it was 68% of the people who came to the Christian bookstore to buy a Bible bought a book about the Bible written by man instead of buying a Bible. And I think we have confused ourselves. I've never written a book, and I don't know if ever God's ever going to leave me. I'm not going to write something unless I really feel God 
is going to do that, and I don't know if I'm, I'm, I don't know if I need to ever write anything, but if I ever were to write anything and you were to buy it, it is not more important than the Scripture. It's not. And we have confused ourselves that proximity and reading things about the faith is the primary thing, and I'm here to say to us today, no, it's not. Sitting at the feet of Jesus with the sacred Scriptures, that is the ultimate priority of our lives. And our role is to sit before the Lord and hear the word and you are to come to church i am to come to church on sundays that i don't preach and i'm to sit in the chairs and i'm to listen to the word i ought to take notes i ought to listen i ought to say what how does this apply to me so my role is to proclaim it and if you come and you sit in here your role is to come and sit and embrace it and listen to it and so mary takes the posture of that teaching matters and secondly, she knows that Jesus' words are different. This is not just some rabbi. She knows. It says this. She sat at the Lord's feet. She knew this was the Lord. This was not just some rabbi from Jerusalem that had come to Bethany. This was the Lord. And she understood, Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me, let me tell you what they're like. Who, who hears my words and does them, they are like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation. And she's just sitting there saying this, I'm going to build my life on what, this, on what the Lord is saying. I'm building my life on it. And the third thing is this, is she understood the privilege that we have to hear the Scripture. And 39 just beautifully says, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. Do you and I understand that privilege that we have this morning of what's happening and taking place right now in this moment? This great privilege that God has spoken words, they have come to us, and we get to receive them. And our hearts can burn when they're read, and they awaken us, and they move us to places of freedom from bondage. Mary knew it was her responsibility to hear the word, and to do the word. In the kitchen, in Bethany, the bread that perishes was being baked. But in the living room, the bread that the Son of Man gives was pouring out of the mouth of Jesus. And it made all the difference in what was happening and taking place in there. Mary got what Jesus said in John 6. Do not work for food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. And Mary is just eating the food that lasts. I want to show a picture to you. I want you to look up at the screen here. This is just outside the church there. These are three sisters who live three hours away from the building that we have built there. There's no church where they live. And they have to walk down a mountain, up a mountain, around some roads to get there. And I guarantee you, yesterday, they were there. They walked three hours one way. And guess what happens when church is over? You don't get teleported. What do you have to do? You have to walk three hours back. Can you imagine what it must be like? You and I have grown up in and around this church on every corner. Can you imagine what, it, what it's like to never be in a place like this and then you get a chance to be in a place like this? 
you'll walk six hours on a Saturday. Wes, show me the front coming through in a moment. You know what my first thought was? Oh, there's people at home right now who are going to go, oh, I'm going to get wet. I'm going to get wet when I walk from the parking lot into the building. What is wrong with us? And you may think, oh, there's not people like that. Oh, yeah, there's not. Yeah, there are people like that. They're part of our church, and they will stay home today. They will stay home today because, it's, oh, man, it's gonna, it might lightning. I want, you, I want you to look at that. After this was over, the service was an hour and a half long. They walked three hours for an hour and a half service to walk three hours back home. Because for most of their lives, and I'm not sure when they fully became believers, they're all three believers, they didn't get to be a part of a place where the proclamation of the Scripture was there. Now they just love to be there, and they just want it, just like Mary, they just want it to fall on them. And so they're willing to walk three hours one way for an hour and a half service to walk three hours back home because God's Word means something. They want to work for the bread that doesn't perish. Well, let's look at the unnecessary life just for a moment as we, as we close up this morning. Look at 40. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered Martha, Martha, you don't want Jesus to say your name twice. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I want to just talk for a moment as we close about the distracted Christ follower. Unless we think that Martha is not as astute as Mary is, do you notice what Martha calls Jesus? Lord. She knows who's in her house as well. Just as Mary knows this is the Lord, Martha knows this is the Lord as well. But here's the thing. The unnecessary life allows a life of distractions to keep us from connecting with Jesus. This word distracted literally means this, to be pulled and dragged away. Hospitality is important, is it not? It absolutely is important. We have a greeting team. That's an aspect of hospitality, welcoming people here on Sunday morning. But that's not more important than what we are doing here right now and what's happening in the kids' building. The proclamation of truth, that's the most important thing. Mary's doing a godly thing. Hospitality is a godly thing, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, is to sit under the feet of Jesus And here's what happens. Our faith gets squeezed when we are pulled away from the gospel and we focus on the urgent, rarely on the essential. And that's what's happening in in Bethany that day. Martha feels the urgency of, man, a group of men have to eat. No, they don't. They can wait. Martha, you ought to go in there and you ought to sit at the feet feet of Jesus just like your sister. Kind of bump her over and sit down. And just join in what's happening. So much of the time, these choices that keep us away from Jesus, they're ones that are necessary. They're things that need to be done. They're just not the most essential thing in the moment. And so sometimes we have to get up a little earlier. Have y'all heard of that? Sometimes you have to get up a little earlier to get some things done. Since I've been back, God has just waking me up in the middle of the night. And I've been going and sitting in the chair in our this room that I don't know why they built in our house. I don't know why they built these dining rooms. But anyway, we we have this dining room that we just put stuff in and it's kind of become my prayer room right now and I'm just sitting there praying over our family, praying for you and and just seeking the Lord. I've been doing that for about an hour every night and and getting up early, walking the streets and just praying and and, and I, I, I need some changes in my life. 
Because I get caught up in, man, busyness is the answer. And busyness distracts us. We think busy equals important, and our culture encourages busyness. The Bible does not. It doesn't. And we are so foolish that we think actually somebody's going to win the rat race. They're not. Nobody's going to win it. And on the road to winning it, this hurrying, thinking, I'm going to have more time, we actually have less time. And here's Martha. Gosh, 1716 Stapleton Drive, that's where I live. I would love for Jesus and a body to show up this afternoon in my house. I'd love to sit on the back porch with him this afternoon, just looking at him and letting him teach. And I'd sit right there on my back porch at his feet. And if he needed lemonade, I might say, just talk, will you? Can we get lemonade later? I want to hear what you have to say. And Martha was just distracted. And her loss of perspective came because she didn't understand the main priority of Jesus. Since what he was doing, that was his main priority. And when our spiritual priorities are wrong, it changes our view of things and our attitude about things. And it, this inevitably happens. We lose joy. It just disappears. And then we're frustrated and we got to blame somebody because it can never be our fault that we're not growing in our faith with Jesus. It's got to be my spouse's fault. Man, if my spouse was nicer, I would love Jesus more if I, or my job or whatever the case. And so here's Martha. She doesn't understand Jesus' priority. It changes her view and the attitude of the situation. She has lost joy in the kitchen. And she comes out, and, and she has two people she wants to blame. Jesus is part of the problem, because he's not telling her to get back in there and do her, her duty. And she's frustrated at Mary that maybe she was in the kitchen at one time, and now she's stopped, and there's a lot of stuff that gets done. And here's what inevitably happens. Spiritual priorities are wrong, changes our view and our attitude, loss of joy. We want to blame others for our frustration, and then we have an action that we will regret. And she literally walks up to Jesus. Think about this. She walks up to Jesus and says, you don't care. Can you imagine accusing Jesus that he doesn't care? Nobody cares more than the one who came and laid his life down to bore our sins in his body. And so here, now she doesn't know that yet, but here she is. She's like, I'm so frustrated that I got to tell you how I feel about this. And so Jesus, I'm stopping the Bible study right now. You listen to me. This is done. And you can continue on in a moment, but you're going to tell my sister to come do something. We are not meant to live a spiritually frustrated life. We're meant to have joy and freedom. And so she lives a spiritual life full of frustration, takes it out on Jesus and Mary, and it happens because she has misguided priorities that lead her to see Jesus wrongly. His great priority is what he's been doing in her home. You see, for it is only in beholding him that will give us the biblical understanding of who he is. And so she's missing out on who Jesus is. And I believe it is in the worship of him as we behold him and soak in his word that that becomes the fuel for accurate serving. We're motivated to take the gospel and to share. But she's just frustrated. And then she just, this ministry of hospitality she just loses the essence of it and it becomes of this so she has this loss of true understanding of ministry 
Watch this. This is critical. Because she thinks entertaining Jesus is more important than engaging him. And it's not. Jesus isn't impressed with anything today but our great proclamation of him. That's what moves him. And so here is Mary. She loses the essence of her hospitality ministry, which is a spiritual gift. Because she thinks that's more important than engaging Jesus. And so Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about some things. And he says this, listen, I want to identify the issue for you, Martha. And let me tell you something about you that you don't see right now. But let me identify it for you. You think duty to me is higher than delight in me. And your duty should be fueled by your delight in being in my presence and hearing my word. You've got it backwards, Martha. See, Martha had a serving ministry, but she had lost a servant's heart. You ever been there? I have. Serving, but I've lost a servant's heart. And Jesus isn't downplaying duty. He's not. He's just saying, let's put it in the right place. She had forgotten these words that David wrote. Psalm 51, 16 to 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, and you will not despise these. He speaks her name twice, likely as reproof, but there's also a bit of tenderness in there. Say, Martha, 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 you've missed it. You've missed it. And it is of more importance to attend to the instructions of the Lord than to engage with the affairs of the world. One's going to abide forever and one's just going to have an ending to it. All other things are not going to last. So let's don't get caught up in those things that aren't going to last to the neglect of placing ourselves at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. There is nowhere in the story where Jesus showed up and said, All right, feed us. All of that could have waited. It could have waited. And so Jesus says, listen, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. And we're about done. I should have said this in the beginning. When the pastor gives a, a word of warning, <laughs> I should have done this in the beginning. I have never written a sermon to speak to anybody in the church. I write sermons based on the text, and if it speaks to you and gets all over you and me, then it just gets all over you and me. It, it wasn't written because I'm trying to single out somebody. But I'm going to single out everybody here, including myself. We are not to work in church attendance when our calendar allows it. It is to be the priority of our life are there times to not be here on Sunday morning? Absolutely. But we are to personal time, sit under the teaching of Jesus. Corporate time, sit under the teaching of Jesus. This is the priority. One thing is necessary. Sitting at his feet, hearing his word, allowing it to fall on our lives. It's more important than the music portion. It's more important than kids' sports. It's more important than hobbies. It's more important than serving. And when Christ followers choose other things instead of this, it leads eventually to bigger spiritual frustrations. One thing is necessary, and let's fill our life with that 
Mary knew what she wanted. She wanted Jesus' words. And Martha has been so engrossed with all the stuff, the physical bread, that Martha is starving spiritually. And the word is the good part. And do you notice the words there? It will not be taken away from her. Here's what Jesus says to Martha. I'm not sending your sister to the kitchen. I'm not sending her there. She's sitting right here, and that's where she's going to stay. Because i got some things to say to my children and to my people. The privilege and responsibility of listening to the word of God will not be taken away from her, and it will not be taken away from us. They could put us in prison today. You ever heard, you ever read? The, uh, some of us went and saw, torture, what was it, Mark? Tortured for Christ, that movie? They put, the, they put believers in prison. Guess what? They, they've got the word memorized, and they just worship with what they've got. You can't take that portion away. You can eat it wherever you are. Everything else is secondary to hearing from Jesus. Let me close with this. Paul Newman's a little bit of outdated. Paul Newman used to be a pretty popular thing. Some of the teens are like, who? Paul? Anyway, he was a big deal at one time. He was this actor and he was filming he was filming in Kansas City. They were doing this movie in Kansas City and uh, this lady had gone into this ice cream shop and she'd bought some ice cream. And she turned around and Paul Newman was standing there, big old blue eyes. And she just kind of just kind of lost it and didn't say anything and walked out. And when she got outside, she, she thought, where's my ice cream? Where's my ice cream cone that I just bought and paid for? It was in my hand. And so she turned around to go back in thinking, did I drop it? What the deal is? And Paul Newman was coming out, and he said, Hello. good afternoon, man. Are you looking for your ice cream cone? Uh-huh. Well, you put it in your purse. And that moment, she had become so engrossed that she's standing before Paul Newman looking at his face that she just put it in there. And let me, just ask, let me just ask this question. When's the last time you and I became so engrossed with the glory of Jesus that we just were lost in it? And that's what Mary did that day. The truth matters. And Mary shows us this is what that looks like. Let's pray.